You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Jim Salakrup, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the show. We have a special interview here with Jim Salakrup. I am uh, happy to be able to talk to any of the editors of any of these books because they have a special behind-the-scenes insight of what kind of was going on during the Marvel bullpen at the time. And uh, especially this one, we were talking about Captain America in in this episode, among other things. And Jim was the editor during the short run that Roger Stern and John Byrne did on the title. Both Stern and Byrne are people that are kind of hard to get interviews with, so I'm happy to be able to talk to Jim Salakrup about their work on this and have uh, some insight uh, from someone who actually was working on the book at the time. And as always, we thank you for your support, all of our Patreon listeners. As a way of saying thank you, we let you hear the interview first, so you're hearing this before everybody else, before I'm releasing this to the general public. If you are part of the general public and are listening to this uh, through our regular feed, then um, you may be interested to know that there are lots of other interviews online if you go to patreon.com slash thunderquack and become one of our supporters. We can't run any of these podcasts on the Thunderquack Podcast Network without you, so we appreciate your support. This episode is a companion to the Captain America Episode 9, Dawn's Early Light. So without further ado, let's get straight to the interview with Jim Salakrup. It is my pleasure to welcome to the show today Jim Salakrup, who is one of the, uh, the, the big editors for Marvel during the 80s and uh, has worked on many titles like Uncanny X-Men, Fantastic Four, Amazing Spider-Man, and what we're going to be talking about today, Captain America. Welcome to the show, Jim Salakrup. Hey, how are you? <laughs> Doing well, thanks. And uh, um, how are you today? I'm Smurf-tastic. Smurf-tastic, yeah, that's uh, um, a reference to what you're currently involved in uh, over at Paper Cuts as Editor-in-Chief, right? Right, yeah. I mean, uh, one, of the, one of the exciting things uh, at Paper Cuts is to... Uh, you know, create comics or publish comics uh, for all ages, and uh, Peyo is one of those guys that uh, uh, created the Smurfs. Uh, you know, even Marvel uh, during the 80s uh, uh, briefly published the Smurfs as well. So, right. uh, But I think the uh, his original work was long overdue to be published uh, in the United States and North America, and... Uh, uh, it's an honor to to be entrusted with that uh, privilege, and uh, and it's uh, an exciting uh, uh, venture that we've been very successful with, and I'm looking forward to the new movie. So yes, I truly am Smurftastic. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I've been picking up all of the uh, Smurf anthology books, and they are just beautifully packaged. They're so great the um, the the quality of uh, the art inside, the restoration, and uh, um, and the the contextual essays that that come before each chapter are just fantastic. Yeah, that's by uh, Matt Murray, who uh, is our resident Smurfologist. <laughs> and uh, you know, we've been very lucky. We've had uh, uh, a sensational designer by the name of Adam Grano. Uh, all these, uh, the two guys I just mentioned, they're both, uh, you know, love the Smurfs so much, and particularly the work of Peyo, that uh you know they they wanted to be involved so for everyone involved it's a uh, labor of love even um longtime uh, letterer Janice Chang uh has lettered all the the smurfs material in a special smurfs font that she created herself so um just just everyone involved has been doing a, a wonderful job and it, and it's just been great to be working on that the wow. project Thank you so much for your comments. I greatly appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. Well, my pleasure. I am a, a big fan of kids' comics, and especially I have 
young kids of my own and as as Marvel and DC comics get more and more mature over the years there's definitely there's definitely kind of a void for those age appropriate comics yeah well you know i grew up uh in the 60s reading comics when technically all comics were for kids you know thanks to the comics code authority so uh you know, for years I was also on the the bandwagon that hey, you know, comics aren't just for kids because they were kind of looked down as as being uh, uh, you know worthless without any artistic uh, value, and uh, as if you know something uh, just because it's designed for children is is worthless. That that's just uh, uh, absurd. But we you know, but comic fans were looking to be taken seriously, and we wanted. You know, people to understand that, you know, comics didn't just have to, you know, be for children, that adults could enjoy uh, comics. It, it was a, an art form like any other. So, uh, surprisingly, uh, over the years, uh, that battle was won to the point where you go to a comic book store, the, uh, you know, maybe 10 years ago, uh, you know, around when uh, Paper Cuts was starting. Uh, it seemed like almost all comics were for adults, and uh, and there was very little for children. You know, ironically, yeah. so that was the uh, opportunity that Terry Nantier, my uh, uh, publishing partner in Paper Cuts, uh, recognized, and uh, we decided to uh, you know leap in and try to uh, offer material that didn't you know uh, write down to. Uh, uh, children that you know were, were intelligent and fun and and even you know there are even volumes of the Smurfs. There are certain stories of the Smurfs that uh, adults enjoy tremendously. Not not just for the fun of the story, but you know there there's layers of uh, you know political satire of all things uh, buried in it, particularly in right. stories like uh, the King Smurf, you know, comes the to Smurf mind. King, yep. right, and the Smurf versus Smurf, etc. So, yeah, but there are many that are just, you know, fun, simple, enjoyable, entertaining stories. And, uh, you know, and there's a, lot, there's a whole generation of uh, adults that I'm uh, certainly a part of that we have no problem watching old Warner Brothers cartoons or things like that. And Or even today when Pixar comes out with a new animated movie, uh, that's a, a great example of... Uh, uh, the kind of entertainment that's available that appeals literally to all ages. You know, kids can enjoy it, adults can enjoy it. So that was Paper Cuts' goal. And uh, we've been doing it for over 12 years now. We even launched a new imprint called Super Genius, very modestly entitled. And uh, <laughs> we've been, you know, it gives me a chance to do stuff like when I was uh, back at Marvel that were for older readers as well. So, uh, you know, instead of just limiting, you know, I think after, uh, you know, 11 or so years of just focusing on material for all ages, it's fun to do stuff like uh, Tales from the Crypt, where, uh, uh, you know, aiming for uh, an older audience as well. So uh, I'm having a great time. So when you say aiming for an older audience, what are you, what kind of age range are you thinking? Oh, just, you know, teen and up. You know, nice. when we say uh uh, all ages on the paper cuts material. We wanted to, you know, parents to uh, feel safe that, you know, if they give it to uh, their six-year-old, five, you know, five-year-old, ten-year-old, you know, there's nothing really there to be concerned about. Um, I remember uh, giving a copy of one of our Nancy Drew graphic novels to cartoonist Kyle Baker, and he. he um, held it in his hand, looked at it, looked back up at me and said, is this okay to give to my kids? And I'm saying, it's Nancy Drew. Of course it's okay. To, <laughs> you know, it, 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 that's who we're doing it for. And, you know, and I, I guess he, my reaction you know, must have surprised him a little. And he explained, you know, he was working for D.C. at the time doing Plastic Man. He says, hey, you know, I won't give my daughter's Wonder Woman, you know, because of how it's being done. Wow. You know, that, yeah. You know, it's not done for children anymore. So, you know, he had reason to ask, and uh, and I didn't mind uh, assuring him that uh, uh, how we did Nancy Drew was uh, totally appropriate. And sure enough, uh, here it is, 2017. Uh, we're still publishing in collected editions all the Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys uh, we've done over the years, and we'll, we'll keep publishing that. 
But now Dynamite has the license for to do Nancy Drew and Hardy Boys comics. And guess what? They're going to do it for older audiences. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> so now Nancy Drew may not be, uh, uh, you know, safe for young readers anymore. Uh, but I think they'll probably do uh, other editions uh, that are. So uh, wow. I don't want to say anything bad about them. I mean, that's been true of lots of characters like Batman, for example. You know, you can't just indiscriminately take any Batman comic and give it to a young kid. So, Definitely. Whereas when, you know, back in the 60s, you could. <laughs> yeah. But now we're in a, a different age, and it's great. You know, if you're an adult and you love Batman, you know, there's more mature Batman stories. There are, you know, Batman movies that are, you know, have more of an adult sensibility. Uh, and they still publish plenty of Batman comics that are perfectly suitable for young kids. Yeah. Well, before we jump into Captain America, I just have one question about something early on in, in your resume that I wanted to ask you about, and that's sure. the, that's the Incredible Hulk toilet paper. <laughs> your the Incredible Hulk Amazing Spider-Man toilet paper. Oh, yes. Let's not leave out Spidey. How can I be involved with anything that doesn't have Spider-Man? <laughs> <laughs> so, um... You were you're credited as being the writer for that toilet paper. Can you tell me about that? Well, I, I worked for uh, Saul Brodsky a lot when I was at Marvel Comics, and uh, for the most part, I mean, during the '60s, he was sort of uh, Stan Lee's right hand man as the production manager. You know, Stan was uh, sort of the editor, the, the the top writer, the art director you know, a uh, number one promotion guy for the company. But in terms of the day-to-day, -day, making the assignments, making sure the deadlines were met, Saul Brodsky was that guy, uh, up until the point where he, like in this, uh, either late 60s, early 70s, left to try to start a, a publishing company of his own, Skywald Company, uh, published comics. Uh, it was sort of a combination. The name Skywald, his, his publishing partner, was... Uh, I think uh, Herschel Waldman or Israel Waldman, I can't remember. Uh, so it was the sky from Saul Brodsky, you know, the, the Wald from Waldman, and they, they published uh, some black and white magazines, color comics, a combination of reprint material, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And for various reasons, distribution, et cetera, et cetera, even though they had some nice comics there, uh, they wound up uh, going out of business, uh, as most uh, competitors eventually, uh, you know, competitors to Marvel and DC seem to do. Right. Um, but Stan loved Saul and welcomed him back, so um, he was one of the people I worked a lot with uh, when I was at Marvel in the early 70s, before I even worked on the color comics. He would head up Marvel's black and white line of magazines. He was uh, supervising the... Uh, uh, reprints of the uh, Marvel material and British Weekly comics. He, uh, that that was a you know a big enterprise at Marvel uh, at the time, and a lot of new people when they were breaking into comics would work there, creating new covers or new splash pages. Or you know, it, it was a he was just a great guy. He was really good at finding uh, new talent. Anyway, you know, years and years later, he's still there. What he was doing during uh, the time when Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief was pretty much anything that wasn't one of the main Marvel comic books. So if they wanted to do newspaper comics, inserts, coloring books, uh, anything that wasn't part of the, the main you know, Marvel comics line, for example, toilet paper, <laughs> yeah. the go-to guy was Saul Brodsky. And at various times, I was either his main writer uh, or one of his editors. Another guy who did the same thing at different times uh, was David Anthony Kraft, who was uh, uh, still is one of my best friends. And we did uh, 150 issues of David Anthony Kraft's comics interview together. We worked on Foom together, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So around that time, uh, someone came up with the idea to do novelty uh, toilet paper. And one of the first ones they did, I think, was the New York Times crossword puzzle toilet paper. And uh, it was a big hit. So once you have a big hit, it seems like the way things work in the world is you want to follow it up with something else. Yeah, of so course. what could they possibly do? And they figured uh, 
Marvel was, you know, always uh, kind of cool and hip, even back then. And they thought, well, you know, and I, I think maybe, uh, I'm not sure whether that was before or after the Hulk and TV shows were on the air. Uh, I don't remember right this second. But that might have been the reason they, they chose those two characters. And uh, and it seemed like, a, a, you know, just a funny idea. Uh, I It always appealed to me because around that time, uh, the printing of comics, you know, was getting worse and worse, you know, culminating in the 80s with probably the worst all-time, you know, printing. And artists would be complaining, oh, I'm working on this stuff and it's being printed on toilet paper. <laughs> well, I'm the only one that could honestly say that, you know, uh, my work was printed on toilet paper. And uh, I always would respond to people. If they didn't like my story, they knew what they could do with it. But <laughs> that aside, it was basically just a licensing deal. Yeah. And it was a novelty item. Uh, we, we had a lot of fun working on it. Um, you know, instead of writing page one at the top of each script page, we'd write sheet one, sheet two, etc. It was uh, one little, it was like really just a little six-page story uh, that would, you know, repeat over and over again throughout the role. I guess they had some way of printing on toilet paper. And uh, I think it was just printed in one color, which I believe was blue, and it would come in a gift box. And, uh, uh, I, you know, I'm not sure... Uh, how well it did, you know, it certainly didn't spawn a uh, a line of any more uh, toilet paper <laughs> yeah. that I'm aware of uh, like that. So, uh, so who knows? But it was something that was uh, uh, unique and uh, uh, fun. I, I always uh, liked the idea of working in different kinds of formats, and uh, uh, I got a big kick out of it. So I'm yeah. very proud of it. I, I'm happy about it. Uh, Usually, whenever I see it for sale anywhere at conventions, uh, I'll pick it up, and you know they they make great gifts. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny! Wow. That's probably more than you ever wanted to know about the marble toilet paper. <laughs> it is an amazing history. That's for sure. Uh, amazing and incredible. <laughs> Let's get into the meat of our our uh, interview here and talk about Captain America. Um, sure. When did you first get associated with that book? Uh, that specific title, I was Roger, uh, Roger Stern's assistant editor on a whole bunch of titles. And, you know, the Avengers, the X-Men, Marvel Premiere, Iron Man, Captain America, Thor, on and on, Fantastic Four, Marvel 2-in-1, reprint titles. It, it was... We were doing a lot of stuff, um, and Roger was great, he was a brilliant editor, a great writer. Uh, a lot of people who would join the, the Marvel staff, you know, uh, you know, from Roy Thomas on, a lot of times were primarily writers uh, looking to, you know, to have like a little bit of security while they were in New York, so they would take a, an editorial job, but you know, their main goal was to, uh, you know, get writing assignments. And usually when they got enough writing assignments and felt they had a secure position, they would probably, uh, you know, return to their home states and uh, and just become uh, full-time freelance writers. So Roger was someone along those lines who was, uh, you know, uh, a great editor. And, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, stress that goes hand in hand with being an editor, worrying about deadlines, not just, you know, for your own assignments, but, you know, trying to make sure all your books, all your writers, all your artists, inkers, colorists, letterers, you know, get their work in on time. It, it, it's, it's a uh, nerve-wracking job sometimes, but greatly rewarding. You get to work with, you know, wonderful, talented people. But, you know, work is work. And Roger was getting to a point where, I'm sure he was uh, looking forward to just writing. You know, that's, that was probably his, uh, his true passion. And since uh, he, and he finally did go freelance and, uh, as a writer, and I was his assistant, so I was the logical uh, person to promote since I'd been working on all those titles before. And, uh, you know, they promoted me to be the editor of the same, you know, lines I was, uh, titles that I was the assistant editor on. I brought in uh, 
an assistant editor to work for me. I think uh, originally it was Bob Budiansky, who was uh, went on to become a writer and artist. Uh, he was an artist at the time, but he also uh, had great writing uh, talent, and I think he became like one of the major writers on Transformers years later. Uh, and so I, I sort of inherited Captain America along with everything else, and uh, I always had, uh, you know, he was one of the the main Marvel comics going back to, uh, you know, the time, uh, one of the main Marvel heroes for Marvel going back to the timely days. How can you not love uh, Captain America? And, uh, you know, so I had nothing but affection and uh, tremendous respect for the character. But sort of like uh, Stan Lee, who would admit occasionally that he, he never could right, find the right uh, angle uh, or, or way to, to handle uh, Captain America, even though I think he did uh, great Captain America comics. Uh, so there was this weird period where I sort of inherited Captain America, where it's not necessarily, you know, the Captain America I would have uh, wanted to be editing. You know, the, the uh, you know everyone has their own uh, ideas, and uh, uh, it's all you know as everyone it's all subjective you know one one writer one creator's opinion is just as valid as another's uh, but i i was never a hundred percent behind steve rogers being a, a freelance artist for marvel comics i i think that was a, a that didn't work for me so so that, that that was one of the issues i had going into it but i had more than enough <laughs> you know, titles to edit that I wasn't about to, uh, you know, cause problems for the creators. If they accepted it and they felt that was good and they could come up with great stories, that's all that mattered. So tell me a little bit about being an assistant editor. Well, it all like at Marvel, uh, fortunately, we were all giving, given a, a certain amount of freedom and leeway to do things uh, the way we wanted to within uh, certain re uh, restrictions. You know, the goal for all the editorial teams was to produce the best possible, you know, stories, artwork, etc., on a monthly schedule or whatever the deadlines were for the specific uh, titles uh, you were responsible for. And each editor, assistant editor team, would sort of evolve their own way of working, you know, playing off the, the strengths of uh, the individuals involved. Uh, I was very lucky. Uh, there was a lot of things Roger wanted to do himself, uh, but he was very uh, generous. He wasn't, uh, um, you know, a dictator. Like, he, he would never say, I'm the editor, I'm going to do this because I'm the editor. Uh, he allowed me, he knew I enjoyed working on covers, so, uh, you know, even though he would you know, he would have great ideas for covers or he would do the cover copy, a lot of time uh, he would allow me to work on the covers, which were one of my favorite things to do, creating the covers, writing uh, the blurbs you saw on the covers, you know, you know, designing it for the, the letterer, et cetera, et cetera, even designing logos at times. Um, a lot of the uh, other things uh, assistants would do is they would handle what uh, they were. Marvel published a lot of uh, reprint titles back then. I think we were doing the Marvel Treasury Edition, Marvel Tales, uh, Rawhide Kid, Kid Colt, um, you know, uh, Weird Wonder Tales. I mean, it's all, I, I can't even remember them all. And I, I, I've, I've edited reprints for as far back as I can remember. And one of the things. Uh, that was always important to me was remembering that I didn't start re uh, reading Marvel comics uh, when you know with Fantastic Four number one. I came in more like the mid '60s, so t titles like Marvel Tales, uh, Marvel Collectors Item Classics, Marvel Superheroes were a great way for me to uh, to catch up on the history of Marvel comics, and I really loved those reprint titles. Whereas internally, sometimes people would think, "Oh, these are, uh, these are low status 
items. You know, the the action is to be editing, you know, the original all-new comics, which, you know, there's something to be said for that. But I, I enjoyed working on, on reprints as well and trying to present those in, in the best way possible, which was uh, challenging uh, throughout different years when, you know, sometimes pages had to be cut because of space limitations, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but I, I would have a great time working on those. Um, so, you know, other than that, the, the, the routine stuff an assistant editor would do is basically whatever the editor would tell you to do. You would, you would help proofread the books. You would, you know, sometimes help proofread scripts. Uh, whatever, you know, the editor thought made the most sense. So uh, that's what you would do. It, it was a great working relationship. Roger was a great guy to work with. And uh, he gave me a lot of uh, freedom. And, 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 you know, Jim Shooter was the editor-in-chief at the time. He was also someone who, uh, as editor-in-chief, definitely had very specific uh, ideas on how he thought, you know, certain things should be. And he was sort of like uh, a great teacher, and he would... Uh, uh, very clearly explain, you know, what you know, what were the things he was looking for, uh, you know, across the line in, in, in Marvel Comics. You know, Stanley had uh, his vision of how Marvel should be. Uh, Jim, you know, sort of uh, embraced a lot of that. More, I think, the early '60s approach that uh, that Stan had. I think, uh, sort of like before. You know, everything became continued stories. You know, those one issue solid stories. You know, very clear storytelling. You know, he he was instrumental in in, in uh, instructing his editors, assistant editors, on on sort of like the basics on how to put comics together. And um, to this day, at at Paper Cuts, I still uh, you know savor and uh, you know advice uh, and knowledge I've gained from Jim Shooter. Stan Lee, Roger Stern, etc., and uh, it helps me every single day. So, assisting at uh, assisting uh, editors in uh, you know is, is a great, wonderful job. You don't have all the pressure on you that an editor might, but you have lots of opportunities. It's all, in many ways, it's like being uh, an apprentice uh, comic book editor. And I was very lucky, and I had lots of opportunities, and it led to becoming a full editor, so I was very thankful. You said that you enjoyed putting the covers together. Is there a Captain America cover that stands out to you, one that you really enjoyed your work on? Uh, there's, there's many of them. We got to work with uh, a lot of uh, freelancers at the time. Uh, uh, Frank Miller did a bunch. I remember there was a Captain America Punisher cover that he did. Um, there was an anniversary uh, cover, and I was really happy that I got to do it. Where I went back to the original Captain America logo from the Timely Days, and uh, that was the very first time in the you know the modern Marvel era that that logo was used again on a on a Captain America cover. And uh, years later, it became the standard <laughs> Captain America logo again. But uh, you could see it was used on. Uh, on the um, there was an issue, an anniversary issue of Captain America that I think John Byrne penciled, and it was reproduced from his pencils. But uh, doing that that cover was fun. There was another one that was uh, we were struggling with, but uh, I think Jim Shooter finally helped. It was the Captain America for President uh, cover, which was just ultimately very simple. It was a big campaign button that probably said something like you know. You know, Captain America for president, which I think uh, Ed Hannigan uh, probably um, penciled and Joe Rubenstein inked. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of a lot of great covers. It was a lot of fun. You know, the uh, uh, a lot of the Byrne covers were great. You know, the one with uh, uh, you know Baron Blood uh, leaps to mind as well. Very, you know, just I, I was very lucky. I had a lot of great artists. Uh, some of the best artists in the business I got to work with, you know, when, when you're thinking about uh, John Byrne and Frank Miller and all the rest. It was great. Uh, one more, <laughs> it was a non-Captain America cover, but one other cover I, I did get a big kick out of uh, 
working on was, um, of all things, a Spidey Super Stories cover. Uh, and I can't remember which issue right now, but there was a, a few of them, I recall. But uh, for Spidey Super Stories, of all things, we got to work... Uh, Jack Kirby did some covers. And uh, I think one of them may have been a bicentennial issue with, with Spidey and Captain America. I can't remember right now. But uh, there was another one with Spider-Man, Doctor Doom, and the Silver Surfer, penciled by Jack Kirby. These were like dream dreams come true, working with Jack Kirby. Yeah. Uh, what's what's better than that? So when you took over as editor, uh, did you just kind of hope uh, keep things running as status quo? Was this this was when Roger Stern and John Byrne kind of took over the title for a short while, right? Right, right, but uh, but uh, yes. Regarding when I took over, uh, it, it was a little tricky. I, I think what happened was uh, a bunch of things were going on at the same time. Uh, at Marvel, I don't know if there's you know uh, any such thing as a status quo per se, but I really am a big believer, and you could see it in a lot of the books that I edited, where I tried. To maintain the same creative teams month after month, issue after issue, and that's not because you know of any other reason than when I was growing up reading Marvel comics, I really loved that. You know, if I was going to, you know, I didn't have to think. There was no, you know, if I liked a particular title, and say Thor, and it was by Stanley, Jack Kirby, and Vinnie Coletta. Pretty much, I knew every month I could pick it up, and that would be the creative team. You know, over the years, there would be little changes here and there, and as Marvel expanded, you know, like, uh, new artists would come on. But for the most part, you know, it's sort of like the ongoing nature of serialized comics that sometimes it takes a little while for a team to come together and gel and, you know... uh, you know, really hit their stride, understand the character, and, and, and find, you know, their voice. It's it's a, you know, it's rare, you know, some top talent are able to do it with their first issue they do. But even Stan and Jack, you know, like, if you look at some of the early issues they did, you know, the first issues were okay. But it's only, you know, after, like, months and months of working together that, it really begins to gel, and, and, and there's all sorts of possibilities that you couldn't have imagined from the early issues that the, that they were capable of. And, there, and there's a growing sophistication in the types of stories and characterization, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it, it doesn't... When you have different creative teams every single month, it, it has that feeling of starting and stopping, and, and, and there isn't that sense of progression. Uh, ironically, television... Uh, feels a lot more like um, Marvel was in the 60s, and that now people, you know, watch TV and they they totally expect that there's going to be a story arc throughout an entire season from episode to episode, as opposed to uh, individual episodes like DC Comics, where you could just juggle them in any order and read them, and they'll make just as much sense. So, of course, I was very much interested in maintaining uh, uh, the team of uh, how can you go wrong with uh, Roger Stern and uh, uh, John Byrne and even, you know, the, uh, I think uh, uh, Joe Rubenstein was the inker. He's a a super talented guy. I went to high school with him. Uh, Jim Novak, I believe, was the letterer. I haven't looked at these books in years, but I seem to remember that. Glynis Ween was the colorist. I mean, everything about it was just great and fun. But one of the things that sort of, uh, <laughs> you know, caused some problems, unfortunately, was that, uh, you know, Jim Shooter uh, trying to uh, bring some sanity or, or at least uh, more uh, structural, you know, you know, get the, the storytelling, you know, more in check and more solid and have more structured, you know, stories with beginnings, middle and end, you know, and give the readers... Uh, a sense of, you know, here's a, a complete story instead of everything being an endless, you know, continuity thing. He had sort of like advised all his editors, and keep in mind, I had just become a full editor, 
you know, I don't want his, his, his what he was telling them was, let's not do any more continued stories for a while. Let's try to do great one-part stories. You know, occasionally let's do a two-part story, but it better be a damn good two-part story. <laughs> and, you know, I don't want to see a three-part story unless it's as good as the Galactus trilogy. So, oh, boy. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I wasn't, I, I didn't want to go there. You know, like, it's all subjective, but I figure, you know, the safest thing to do and, you know, the thing that seemed to be, you know, make the most sense is just try to come up with solid, you know, one-part stories. And unfortunately, I think this this sort of hit at a time when uh, Roger and John were, uh, you know, planning, uh, you know, some continued stories, and uh, uh, it, it led to a bit of uh, a back and forth. And, and, and you know, Roger has, you know, uh, uh, you know, an interpretation of it that... Uh, you know, he's, he, I'm not saying I'm right, he's wrong. He, he may be right such a long time ago, I, I can't remember perfectly. Uh, I think uh, he, he was upset. I think maybe a fill-in uh, was, was put in, and there was some kind of policy uh, at the time where uh, uh, they want, there was an incentive program where, you know, like company-wide, they wanted to maintain the same creative team issue after issue. And... Uh, when I read, you know, Roger say this, it's like I can't imagine uh, why there would have been a fill-in because uh, certainly he and John Byrne are, uh, are top professionals, and I can't imagine them ever being late on anything. But um, who knows? I mean, that might be a reason that, that he was upset. Um, and also, it's like, uh, you know, I've talked to John uh, Byrne about it, and, you know, there's also an awkwardness where... Um, Perhaps, you know, at that time we were both younger guys, and the idea of, you know, uh, Roger working, you know, for someone who was once his assistant uh, maybe was uh, an awkward transition for both of us in that, you know, uh, suddenly having to, you know, listen to what his assistant is telling him may have been awkward for him, or maybe, I, I don't know, maybe I was insecure and had to insist that I'm the editor now, and <laughs> who knows what it is looking back uh, after all these years. But, but it, to my mind, I think the biggest problem was they, they wanted to do a story that uh, wasn't a one-parter, and I was begging them to do that, and uh, uh, my, my, uh, what I was getting back from them was... Uh, you know, either you let us do it this way, or you know, we're, we'll walk off the title. And uh, you know, and uh, that that seemed a bit uh, extreme to me. And uh, so, you know, whether it was miscommunication and misunderstanding, who knows at this point? But you know, it, it didn't seem like we were able to, to solve the problem. So you know, they they quit, and I had to keep on going and, and find new people to work on Captain America. And, you know, that's how it goes. I got to continue working with. Uh, uh, John on the Fantastic Four, so where he was writing and drawing, and that was a lot of fun. And you know, Rogers continued to do you know great stuff for all sorts of comics, you know, including Superman, etc. So uh, you know, it's worked out well, I think, for all of us. Well, that's good. Yeah. Um, what did you think of uh, Stern's take on Captain America? Because you mentioned earlier that everyone has their own take on the character. I, I thought it was totally fine. Uh, the only uh, the only uh, problem I had was the the whole idea of uh, Steve Rogers as a uh, comic book artist per se. You know, uh, and that's not to say uh, you know that couldn't be done in such a way that I thought was well. That's brilliant. I mean. The issues that uh, that we came out with were were great. There was lots of wonderful stories there. They looked beautiful. Uh, I, I liked the storylines. Roger always had great ideas. John had great ideas. Uh, so I didn't have a problem with 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 any of it. It was just like that was just like uh, me being nitpicky, really. So you know, whatever worked for them. I you know, you want your creators to be happy. I didn't want to be. Uh, imposing any restrictions on them other than, uh, I guess, passing along some of the restrictions that were, you know, uh, that I had to work with. So, uh, yeah, no, Rogers, 
uh, everything he's ever done has been uh, uh, very well thought out, you know, very much in keeping with established continuity and respectful of what had gone before. And, uh, you know, with with a high regard for making it as, uh, as exciting and uh, dramatic and enjoyable as possible. He's, he's, he's done lots of wonderful stuff from Doctor Strange, The Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, you know, the, the stuff he did at Marvel was, was just incredible. And he was, you know, as I said before, just great to work uh, uh, as his assistant on... Uh, a daily basis. Uh, I learned a lot from him. I'm very thankful for uh, that experience. Was the Captain America for President issue a difficult one to uh, to come up with concept? I don't know. I, I, I one of the things to uh, for me to put everything in context. It's it's so many years later that uh, handling you know so many titles back then. It was. Uh, you know, very exciting, and uh, you know you're thinking about each title and, and, and trying to make each one work the best way possible. But at the same time, there's always a clock ticking, and you're 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 you know a lot of times just more concerned with, you know, I got to make sure uh, we get this right, and uh, and we get it out on time, uh, and having uh, an editor in chief such as Jim Shooter who could be very hands-on, particularly when there are certain key issues you know, or, or key events happening. Um, and that, that would happen uh, a lot of times when, on, on titles I was editing. You know, if, uh, if Peter Parker and Mary Jane were going to get married, Jim would, you know, become a very active participant in the editorial process. Same thing as when... Uh, you know, Jean Grey, uh, you know, became Dark Phoenix in the resolution of that storyline. Uh, you know, there's a version that was published that was the way I edited it, where Jean Grey lived, and you know, and the published original version was really uh, Jim Shooter stepping in and deciding, wait, no, she has to die, and, and giving the title to uh, Louise Simonson to edit, and, and which was the absolute best decision to make because that's like considered a classic now. So Jim had very, very strong, great editorial instincts. And uh, it'd be foolish to, to argue with him on some of these things. History has proven how, how time and again his, his uh, decisions were absolutely the right ones to make. And on Captain America, with Captain America for president, I know he had, you know, very strong thoughts on that. And and, you know, the idea is like, hey, you know, when you have that many strong uh, creative talents wanting to be involved in something, as editor, you know, for me, my role was try to get out of the way. You know, let, you know let's figure out uh, what what the best course is to follow and, and make that be the uh, the story. And Jim also had a very strong personality, so there's no... Uh, you know, messing around with him either. So it worked out very well. You know, so uh, you know, it, it, but but it was but it was great. It was it, it, in a way what it did. You know, sometimes when people get too much creative freedom, you know, they they might co become complacent or they might just, you know, uh, you know, decide, uh, oh, you know, this is good enough. Uh, you know, the deadline's coming up. Uh, I can't worry about it anymore. I'll, I'll just get it done. But when there's that sort of uh, creative friction where, you know, uh, you know, there's a strong editor-in-chief at the top who has strong opinions, that makes everyone along the way, you know, really become, you know, if they care about what they're doing, you know, like they, you know, they, they really become a lot more active and a lot more uh, defensive about what they're doing in, in a positive way and saying, no, this is this is the story I want to do, and I want to do it for these reasons. And and you get into these, uh, you know, creative arguments from time to time. But but I find what that does is getting everyone creatively uh, worked up to the point where they just passionately care about what they're doing, and that seems to lead to the absolute best comics. You know, as opposed to just 
you know, here it is, here's another issue. <laughs> so at the time, it might be a little, uh, you know, scary to be involved in that kind of stuff, but uh, I think the results, uh, you know, are, are, are incredible. But, you know, by the same token, you know, uh, uh, you know, again, it's all subjective. You know, maybe maybe things don't work out right, but I, I think we were very lucky in that uh, we had a pretty good track record and things... Uh, worked out pretty well a lot of the time so uh, I'm very thankful for that after Roger Stern and John Byrne left um, like you were saying you went through kind of a series of uh, of uh, fill-in artists and, and writers just to kind of get the keep the stories coming out before you settled sure. in on the actual like an ongoing continuing artist and writer team um, what was that process like having to constantly find new people to, to fill in these stories was that a stress for you? No, I mean, uh, on one hand, at that time also, there was uh, a policy of, of creating fill-in issues. Uh, so in case, you know, something like that happened, or if the freelancers fell behind, or they got sick, or, you know, or they abruptly left, or, you know, any uh, anything could happen. Uh, so there was sort of a, a stockpile of... Uh, you know, fill-in issues, or maybe just fill-in plots, or or whatever. And um, Marvel's bookkeeping department uh, would get a little uh, antsy if uh, there was too much of a backlog. You know, so I remember when I first took over the Spider-Man titles. I, you know, I was coming in and I didn't necessarily know 100% what I needed to do. You know, but so on one hand, I was keeping you know, teams in place and trying to keep them going. But there was also, you know, uh, when I spoke to uh, bookkeeping, they said, we have, like, tons of uh, <laughs> villains. Can you can you please use some of them? And I thought, well, that could be a way for me to buy a little time while I figure out exactly what I want to do. So I think uh, uh, this was a, wasn't quite as extreme with the Spider-Man titles, but on Captain America there was some material that was pretty good that were you know, one-part stories, and, uh, uh, you know, it, it seemed like, it, you know, characters would evolve and change so much that if we didn't use them at that particular point, who's to say uh, when they'd be used? So it was an opportunity to, uh, you know, please bookkeeping. <laughs> okay. And, 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 and it fit that climate specifically. When I, as I mentioned, when Jim was looking for one part story, so hey, there's a whole backlog of this stuff. Why, why kill myself, you know, and start with a new team under immediate pressure, you know, to to get everything right in like one month or something? Why don't we, you know, find the team, you know, see if it's working, you know, you know, you know take the time to, to get things right, and then launch when we're we're confident. And that, that seemed to be uh, a lot of fun to do as well. Uh, J.M. DeMattis was uh, uh, one of my favorite writers uh, to this day. Um, you know, Mike Zeck, an, an awesome artist. Um, you know, it, it was just wonderful to have these people available. I mean, that specific team uh, I got to work with again on Spider-Man, and that, you know, produced one of the, you know, the stories that people are, you know, still talking about, you know, the Craven's Last Hunt storyline. Mm, yeah. That that was uh we all uh had a you know, took great pride in uh in working on so that that was wonderful. So but this was sort of like uh, I think the first extended uh period I, I worked with these guys. I, I think I was working with Zach before Captain America on Master of Kung Fu and I loved what he did there and I think uh Gene Day took over after Mike on that title, and I loved working with him. I brought him into Marvel. Uh, so this was a team of creators that I had, you know, tremendous respect for. Uh, you know, obviously, you know, uh, very different from Stern and Byrne, but, uh, you know, DeMattis is someone who's a, a very intelligent writer, you know, brings a certain perspective for his, you know, to his work, uh, so it was interesting. It was an interesting challenge to to try to get that going. Uh, I think that was probably, you know, uh, the last major team on the book before Mark Grunewald began his 
long run on the title. Right. And, uh, you know, and that's yet another example of someone, uh, you know, talk about, you know, believing and having a, you know, a consistent creative team on a project. You know, like, uh, I can't imagine anyone um, being more uh, devoted, you know, to Captain America than Mark was. Whereas that's not to say, you know, Roger and, and Mark DeMattis, uh, uh weren't. Uh, I, I think, I think maybe they they're much more uh, committed to doing great stories. But wherever they land, you know, uh, you know, so with 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 those guys, whether it was Spider Man, Captain America, you know, DC, Marvel, whatever company. Uh, or even different genres. These were very talented people who perhaps didn't want to be locked into one thing forever, but enjoyed the opportunity when they had the chance to say what they had to say and, and do the kind of stories they wanted to do. So it was very exciting to uh, to work with them. Uh, there were all sorts of crazy things thrown at us from time to time. Uh, I remember uh wasn't... Uh, Team Team America had a uh, <laughs> debut somewhere in there, and uh, that's right. That was something uh, coming. You know, like so. You try. Uh, I I never really uh, had a problem when there would be. Uh, a, but of course, I was the editor, not the writer. <laughs> but I kind of felt uh, whenever there was like a company wide crossover. Uh, which I don't think there was much of it. I don't think uh, when I was on Captain America we were ever affected by anything like that. Uh, that was later when I was working on Spider-Man. But I would embrace these things. If they said, hey, here's a, you know, throw these characters in. You know, uh, I looked at it as an opportunity. Well, well you know, it, it, it mixes it up. It's something new and different. Well, let's make an event out of it. Let's make this as exciting as we possibly can. You know whether we succeed or not is a whole other story, but I, I really like the idea of that. I did like when there was that uh, movie from uh, the creators of South Park called uh, Team America. <laughs> <laughs> I think I like that Team America more. Yeah, it was not exactly <laughs> the same. That was um, was that kind of a licensing thing? Oh, the Team America. Team I'm America. Not sure. I can't remember right now, but uh, it was these motorcycle characters. I, I I don't know what the deal was now, but. Uh, you know, it, it, it's something I know. Uh, uh, I mean, Jim Shooter, for example, besides being editor in chief, knew a lot about motorcycles, and uh, and I I have no problem confessing freely that I'm a New Yorker in the sense that I don't even have a driver's license. I don't know how to drive. <laughs> wow! So I certainly don't know anything about motorcycles, and I would defer entirely to. Uh, uh, you know, Jim Shooter on that. So, uh, you know, whatever whatever happened, I, I think, was that issue actually uh, originally scripted by David Anthony Kraft, even? That may have been one of the villains that I think back on it. Uh, no, that was a DeMatteis issue. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. There was a lot of stuff back then, and we just, uh, you know, who knew? You know, it, it made the job exciting. It's like, you know, like, hey, we want to do something like this. Let's throw something like this in, and... Uh, you know, I think that's what makes uh, the issues memorable. Uh, the other problem uh, as an editor is, uh, on one hand, you every single month, if it's a monthly comic, you want to be able to give the fans of whichever character it is or whatever title it is, what they come to expect in the sense of they like Captain America because of A, B, C, and D. You want to be able to include that. The creative challenge is how do you include what they're looking for all the time, but make it new and exciting, right? And also make it accessible to someone who's never read it before. You know, it, it's it's a very you know tricky thing. You know, if, if you if you if it's too much the same thing over and over again, then you know readers can get bored and look for something else to read. Uh, so you and if you go too far astray. Then you know, uh, you know, you you might be alienating uh, some of the fans. You know, it, it, it would be like crazy to say, "Hey, guess what? Cap's a member of Hydra." You know, like who knows how fans would react to something like that? You know, <laughs> but 
you know, we we, I, we try to find things every month that would uh, make it seem fresh and new and exciting and uh, and different, and but yet still try to be as true to the character as we possibly could. I know we talked about this a little bit at the beginning, but what's new and exciting in your world that you'd like to tell our listeners? Oh, well, I... <laughs> You have another hour, but uh, <laughs> now we're always we're always uh, you know trying to find uh, uh, you know different things uh, to do, and uh, probably the there's two big things at Paper Cuts right now. Uh, I, I won't go over every single one. I'll, I'll mention a few things, and uh, uh, the two biggest things is we started a couple of other imprints. I think I mentioned one of them before, which was Super Genius. And um, some of the things we've done with that is, uh, for example, we have a, uh, an original graphic novel series called Trish Trash by uh, writer-artist Jessica Abel. And it's about uh, a girl living on Mars in the future who is, uh, you know, like sort of a, uh, a futuristic uh, roller derby uh, aspirant. And... Uh, which is very interesting. Um, we also uh, got the rights to uh, republish and, and connect, uh, collect and uh, hardcover and trade paperbacks um, these characters that were created years ago by Neil Gaiman for a company uh, way back in the early, mid-90s called Techno Comics. And... Um, Particularly, uh, you know, there was a series called Technophage, uh, Misty Hero, The Pneumatic Man, and Lady Justice. And these comics uh, had lots of great talent on it. Uh, I think what happened is a lot of this material got lost during that, um, you know, the the big um, boom in comics in the 90s. But there actually were some really good stories, some good writing, some good artwork. And uh, it was a lot of fun to uh, collect those. They're all out now and, uh, you know, available in bookstores, comic book stores, etc. Uh, another imprint that we've announced, but none of the material has come out yet, is another line uh, for girls. Uh, that's part of, uh, it's going to be part of Paper Cuts called Charms, with a Z at the end. And it, it's sort of... Uh, you know, taking, uh, you know, just publishing more stuff for, uh, you know, girls maybe, uh, you know, from 6 to 12 to 15, or, you know, that age, is, those ages in there. Uh, there's a particularly uh, uh, one original title, that's, and there, there are several, um, that's going to be published under that imprint, is created by the editor who's going to be supervising the entire uh, Charms imprint. That's uh, Mary McCourt. And she created this series called um, uh, Stitched about a uh, this girl who's sort of uh, all stitched together and uh, wakes up, has no memory of uh, who she is, uh, you know, wakes up in what seems to be a cemetery, meets all sorts of odd, crazy characters, and uh, has to figure out what it's all about but there's several other titles it, it just it's very exciting to launch something completely new like that and uh, once again going for an audience that's still somewhat underserved but it seems like you know comics in general now are are doing more to embrace diversity and try to you know reach out to other audiences that have been neglected for years i'll just wrap up with a couple of titles that are well I'll make it three <laughs> okay sure one is uh, a series that you know two volumes are out now it's like uh, a comic book that when I was a kid that was published called Dennis the Menace and I think when that was out I probably looked down at it thinking it was you know uh, one of those juvenile comics for kids and I was too sophisticated for I read Marvel comics but they actually had some incredible writing and some awesome artwork, and a lot of people in comics at Marvel, I remember, absolutely loved those comics. You know, uh, Fred Hembeck had, had written uh, a long essay for his blog years ago, you know, saying he felt 
as strongly about that material as he did about the Lee Ditko Spider-Man. So that, you know, I have such a re- respect for Fred, who I've worked with for years, that I, I couldn't dismiss it. I had to find out, you know, what, well, I got to take this seriously. I got to find it. And one of the things, one of the things he was hoping for is that someone would collect those stories and give them the, the serious recognition that, that they deserve, you know, along with Carl Barks and, you know, other, you know, people, John Stanley, who've, who've done, you know, great work in children's comics. So we've already done two volumes of Dennis the Menace. Uh, the first one focusing on the Al Weissman, uh, Fred Tool, Dennis the Menace stories, uh, which includes that essay by uh, Fred Hembeck and also uh, an afterword by Bill Ray. The uh, second volume features the Fred Tool stories, but illustrated by Owen uh, uh, Fitzgerald, and that has an intro- uh, introduction by. Uh, uh, Gilbert uh, Hernandez of Love and Rockets fame. Oh, yeah. He feels that, you know, um, Owen uh, uh, Fitzpatrick, what's his name? Fitzgerald, I can't even remember now. Uh, Owen Fitzgerald is one of the best cartoonists out there. You know, uh, I think um, uh, Gilbert said, you know, he is, as far as an uh, artist, uh, an inspiration, and someone he admires, he feels that Owen draws humans you know, better than anyone in terms of naturalism, you know, the, the you know, the the postures, the positioning of them, you know, it's it's a real love letter. He he loves this material. We're in work on we're working on the third volume right now. Bill Alger, a cartoonist and a huge Dennis the Menace fan, is the editor on this series and it's a labor of love for him. And the third volume is the first one we're we're gonna be um collecting one of those 100-page giants the Dennis the Menace uh, series was famous for, and this being the, the best-selling one of all, the Dennis in Hawaii 100-page special. Nice. But not just the comics, uh, Bill, the editors, uh, he has a never-before-published interview with K- Hank Ketchum himself, the creator of Dennis the Menace, talking wow. about Al Weissman and the comic books and you know, this has never been published anywhere else. Plus, lots of uh, material that Bill was able to interview. You know, people who uh, you know get the reference photos that you know photos of the creators when they went to uh, Hawaii. Uh, I mean, just tons. Of, this is like uh, almost like uh, when you get a DVD and it has all those extras and behind the scenes stuff. Mm-hmm. This one is jam packed with that. Plus, there you know the uh, Dennis in Hawaii comic was later updated uh, by uh, an artist named Frank Hill, who, who did some new stories with the original writer uh, uh, you know, Tool, Fred Tool, and uh, that's included. So this is, you know, if anyone who may already own uh, you know, Dennis in Hawaii and is a big fan of Dennis the Madness comics, this is the ultimate edition. <laughs> <laughs> is it, of, is it uh, in kind of the same format as the Smurfs anthologies? They're, they're comic book size, but they are 192-page books, and so they're jam-packed with comics, and, and the first two volumes are almost entirely, you know, comics with, you know, short little introductions and afterwards. But the third one is, you know, still has tons of comics, but has the most in terms of uh, background material. Nice. And the, the only two other comics uh, or titles I'll mention is uh, very briefly is Ariel. When I talk about um, uh, comics that Paper Cuts publishes for all ages, that's got to be the one of the best examples. It's like, you know, sometimes I think adults love it more than uh, than children, but it's a big hit. Children love it. Adults love it. Uh, it it's really just beautifully done. Uh, it's written by Emmanuel Guibert and illustrated by Mark Boutevin. It's published originally in France. We translate it very faithfully. And it's, it's, it's anyone who was ever a kid will love this series. It's, uh, <laughs> it's just beautifully done. Um, and I'll, I'll just plug one more title. It was called uh, Ernest and Rebecca. Uh, you know, sometimes when I fall in love with a series and 
you know, in most of the stuff that we publish, and I, I, I've been so lucky that, there's, that they've been successful. But uh, like with Ariel, it's, uh, we're, we're just keep publishing and publishing. It's doing great. And But something like uh, Ernest and Rebecca is something that's won awards in Europe, but even struggles there. And uh, it's about a little girl and, uh, you know, her friend, who we don't know whether she's, whether he's imaginary or real, and and their family life, and it's incredibly well written. It's beautifully illustrated. In many ways, it's almost like a uh, a female uh, version of Calvin and Hobbes. And, you know, and, and, and I realize what a big claim that is, but uh, there, there's just you know some absolutely wonderful writing, beautiful artwork. Uh, and and uh, and the most frustrating thing for uh, an editor or a publisher is that you know it, it just doesn't sell that uh, well. You know I think uh, you know maybe there's something off-putting about the basic concept, or people might think it's a little too gimmicky. But whenever I'm able to get someone to actually read one, they they fall in love with it and they, they actually love it uh, tremendously. So. If anyone ever sees a, <laughs> a copy of Ernest and Rebecca anywhere, you know, I give it my uh, uh, highest recommendation. I hope you, you try it. Yeah, I, I think you might fall in love with it. I'll definitely give it a shot. I like to, uh, to, to try any kids' comics so I can have good recommendations for those who well, uh, I, come I, to I, me. I hope you do. And let me know what you think of it. Sure. Maybe I'm deluded, but uh, after all these years in comics, I, I think I know a good comic when I see one. <laughs> and I just love that one. Well, good. Well, your track record at Paper Cuts is great, so I'm sure this is good, too. Well, thank you. Thank you. Again, really, let me know what you think. Because, uh, you know, there's a few more we, uh, that exist that we haven't published yet, and I, I, I just hope that uh, there's some way we could we could get to those as well. If, if for only selfish reasons that I'd love to read them myself, and I don't right. know how to read French. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate taking the time to talk with us today, Jim. This has been a very insightful and interesting conversation. Thank you very much. Yeah. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. Great, thanks. <laughs>